let's see. We have Corey, Chris, Dale, and Westbrook. Good morning. Definitely want to send out a, a special thanks of gratitude to Darian uh, being the tech master MC for. So is it my audio that makes Dale sound horrible, or is it Dale's audio that makes Dale sound horrible? I've always been under the suspicion that Dale might be a robot, so this is either an audio issue or confirmation. <laughs> I vote confirmation. Dale is a robot. Cool. Well, I, I think we have a decent amount of people in here. If we would, uh, <laughs> if we want to start off um, just okay, a round of introduction, now, can you hear way us? Better. Way better. Now I just figured out how to work the internet. There we go. Way better. Well, this call's gonna get a lot better. Though. That's the. That's why you cool. put a robot statement before. Now I'm I'm cluing in. It's still eight in the morning, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, ten alarms later, I do know. There we go. And that's oh, that's great. Two young kids. Oh yeah. <laughs> See, I don't usually. T- okay, there we go. I know. Trust me, I know how the internet works, but I fail. I fail miserably right on my face. So hey, okay. Has has anybody mentioned the the hashtag that people can submit questions to? I personally am super used to like talking with um, <laughs> a dog squeaking a toy. I'm talking in like meetups and things like that, where it's a very open conversation. And so though, if you have questions and you really kind of want to interact with us, please um, use the hashtag developing design systems. And, um, and we will try as hard as much as possible to in- include that in the, in this ongoing conversation. And then I have a dog that won't leave me alone. Okay. I also just kind of quickly introduce myself. Uh, I'm Dale Sandy, another UI guy on Twitter. And I work with Alaska Airlines building the Oro design system. And with that, I'm going to stop talking and let some other people get a chance. So somebody else go, go. Yeah, uh, I'll start next. My name is Darian Rosebrook. I'm a, a senior UI designer doing design systems on the enterprise tools. I'll choose Corey to go next. Hey everyone, uh, my name's Corey. I created an open source library of web components called Shoelace, and I'm currently doing some design system stuff over at Microsoft. Hi, uh, I'm Westbrook Johnson, and uh, I work at Adobe, where I lead the Spectrum Web Components project, which brings the larger Spectrum design system uh, into the web uh, via web components technologies. And I'm Chris Holt. I'm a principal UX engineering manager at Microsoft, a maintainer of FAST, and uh, my team has been one of the primary contributors to the uh, Fluent UI Web Component initiative as well. Sweet. Well, thank you, everybody, for the introductions. Yeah. So Dale had approached me and the rest of the group on trying to set up a space where we can start talking about design systems at scale, especially in terms of current web technologies. Dale, if you want to give a little bit about your vision of why we wanted to kind of get together and talk, that'd be great. Yeah. No, um, so, right. Yeah. This is what maybe like about a month ago. I don't know. I've been listening to kind of like other podcasts and video blogs and things of that nature surrounding the design system community. And and there was a part of the conversation that I guess um, I felt was always missing. And so I, I approached these guys, you know, um, 
Chris, Chris and I are personal friends and we go way back. Corey, of course, has been a, a, a huge inspiration for a lot of the stuff that I do with Shoelace and and Westbrook. I mean, he was he was a huge help when I started working with the old design system three years ago. And there were very few people that had um, as an extensive background in this space as Westbrook did. So, and, and Darian, again, a, another um, previously a Seattleite, um, I desperately tried hard to get him to work with me on, on, uh, on Oro at Alaska Airlines because yeah, sorry. Of, <laughs> it wasn't your fault, man, um, because of his, the way he approaches design from um, a very unique perspective that I don't see a lot of other designers do. So I reached out to these guys and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm missing a conversation in the world that I'm having a hard time finding. So why don't we start having the conversation? And um, it, it, the interesting was, thing was, is that it was, I sent out that tweet message to, to everybody on a Friday when I was actually having a really bad day. And I was like, you know what? I should have just been a plumber. I'm, I'm sick of tech and everything's really making me mad right now. So I, but I happened to send this off. And then over the weekend, it was met with so much like enthusiasm that it actually completely recharged me, which was amazing. And, and everybody was so excited about this idea. And uh, we got on a phone call and we started talking and, and the conversation was absolutely fluid. So the vision at the end of the day is to take that fluid conversation that we had about the things that we're super passionate about in this space ergo developing design systems and and shared with all of you so um that's that's the vision is just to have a conversation that for selfish reasons is something i'm looking for and and i hope it's something that um other people see value in as well yeah definitely i, I think one of the biggest things is uh keeping this an ongoing conversation not just amongst ourselves but with the design systems community at, at large uh one of the reasons why we wanted to start this space is to uh, also get input from everybody else here who who works on stuff or if they have questions uh, like uh, utilizing the thread and and hashtag here for us to be able to start answering questions about things that we see is in terms of best practices or processes that help between both design, development, um, and utilizing web tech uh, for design systems, et cetera. So. Yeah, I think this was, this was going to be a place where we could share our opinions, right? That, that, <laughs> gets, that gets more nuanced at work. So here we can just talk about all our feelings. Well, Darren, I think we had, we had some questions primed, right, that came in. Do we want to start there? Yeah. So Corey Rylan, um here on Twitter actually had some pretty good questions. And I wanted to start with what are some of your strategies, thoughts in conveying to stakeholders that a design system is valuable, even if it's staffed with a small team? Um, I, I believe... Each of us uh, comes from a small design systems team or has had experience with that in the past. So I'm, I'm curious to hear y'all's perspective on how y'all make sure that the stakeholders feel like it's important. 
for investing in design systems. Um, Dale, you might you might be a good uh, with the history. Uh, of yeah, just make sure everybody can hear me still, right? You're still good, boss. Yep. I'm still good, boss. All right. If you want to start a design system in your company, this is not the path for the faint of heart. Um, I, and I, and I say that because, um, throughout the span of my career, I've probably been a part of anywhere between like three to five different versions of a design system. And, and each one of them really kind of met their own level of success and failure with the needle trending more towards failure. And, and one of the reasons for that is, um, there's two really, really hardcore elements that you have to have that I really zeroed in on when I accepted the position at Alaska, which is one, you have to have leadership um, support, unwavering, undoubting leadership support. And I'm not talking about just like your direct manager. I'm talking your direct manager, your manager's director, and, um, you know, the the, the managing director or VP or whoever, however far out that line goes. But somebody along that line of ladder all the way up to the top has to be your advocate 100%. Because in, in any given situation, when you're trying to build a design system, you're trying to build an internal tool. And it takes an amazing amount of effort to build these tools and it takes dedication and it takes support. So no matter how you spin it, whether you work at a company like Alaska, where our product is not technology, right? Our product is, you know, selling airline tickets. Um, or you go and work for Adobe where the product is technology. No matter which one of those situations, your project is a cost center. You can't sell a design system. So it's really important to have that leadership support there because without it, it's easy for your team to get crushed, um, be it a one-person or a five-person team. And then you, you get turned into something like, well, you can do this like 10% of your time or you know, it's only going to be an open-source project that nobody really pays attention to. And every time that happens, like it's a death knell. Um, the second thing is that you have to have an extremely aggressive and well thought out adoption strategy. So whether that adoption strategy is in um, a line with your leadership support, um, or it's something that you just have to work out with uh, your peer engineers, it's really, really important. Uh, me personally, being, a, you know, I was a team of one for for the first year, um, I worked on a project I, that's, it was just me heading the entire thing up and I was uh, coordinating with other designers in the organization. Um, and then I was going to get expanded to a team of three and then COVID came. And COVID was, was an interesting thing as well, too, because, you know, as soon as COVID hit, I mean, we all know what happened to the airline industry. So I was reduced to a team of one again for a very long period of time. And because of that very, very small resource and my ability only to really do a handful of things at a single time, I had to have a very, very slow strategy 
of of getting adoption in the organization, which in the long run, it, it definitely did take longer, but it's much more solid. Um, I would argue right now that, you know, the design system at Alaska Airlines is now integrated to such a point that it's not impossible, but it's really hard to get rid of it. Um, so everybody's experience in this space is going to be very, very different. But, um, you know, those two things, regardless, I think are, are persistent across no matter what kind of project you're working on, right? I for sure agree that leadership buy-in is, is, is big. The one thing that I'll say is it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Um, because if a, if a designer, right, if you're a designer or an engineer, if you're an engineer, like the three of us, if, if another engineer is told that they are using your stuff, right. And it is mandated. So I've been in this position from, a very, very high level at Microsoft where it was mandated when I first started and I started uh, on a design system team. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of folks who are uh, hard at work supporting this on this call, I think. Uh, it was mandated that every site was going to use this design system, which meant that they didn't have a choice, which meant that anything that went wrong or didn't meet their requirements, uh, whether those were valid requirements or not, would receive a lot of backlash and blame. Right. And so there's there's that double edged sword of what does it look like to have leadership support, but not necessarily a unilateral. These are all the things you can use uh, because you can go too far there, I think. The fight for buy in and and transition has been a lot more rough rather than it being mandated across. I, I almost wish I had that on my side. Yeah, it's almost like you can't win. It is, as Dale said, not for the faint of heart. <laughs> Right. No, uh, but I think there's, I think there's value, right? I think the, the, it's an interesting question because I think the perception is that if it's not funded well, it's, it's not valued. And I would say from an organizational standpoint that that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Like funding represents what, um, <clears throat> what is valued a lot of times. And so that's an easy way to put it, but you know, I don't know that that makes it less valuable. Um, and you can see this just from a simple, you know, <clears throat> thought process on certain dependencies that have gone awry. I mean, I'm thinking about like pad left. If anybody remembers the NPM pad left uh, controversy where that one little package reached hell across like the entire web, you know, for <clears throat> what was it, a week? Something like that. Design systems can have significant impact regardless of how many people are there. The larger thing is, how do you build trust with the folks that you're supporting? And do you view it, if you are underfunded, as a spoke model where folks can contribute, where you can create a wheel that spins faster? Um, because that can, in turn, also create that growth, right? And create that, uh, that value uh, if it's not already seen by your leadership to be seen by your leadership. Well, I would, I, I want to, I want to pull Westbrook in here um is i think westbrook's story about building spectrum web components is kind of a unique story because um adobe had a, a very long strategy for how they want to integrate web technologies into their core product ergo photoshop and illustrator and such and so forth so uh westbrook are you open to or open or able to talk about that 
Well, I think that the, the, that gets into some interesting places, but I, I, I'd like actually a little information from you, Dale, about something that I don't know about your team to help me tell the story. So you say that you are a team of one. Uh, does that mean that you're doing all of the design? Does that mean you're doing all of the um, uh, uh, requirements gathering? Does that mean you're doing all of the advocating of consuming the system uh, across the company? Or, or what's the scale of your role? Because I think this is an interesting thing that we can run into. And I, I'll just give you a little bit of background. It's like, I could say that for a long time, I was a team of one. But I was a team of one inside of the Spectrum Web Components, which is a sure. part of the larger Spectrum design system. And um, I, I'll get into what that means a little bit more, but uh, very clearly the Spectrum design system at Adobe has a rather large team that I couldn't actually count. I don't know the full scope of where I would say it started and ended. Um, but while they're not working with me on a regular basis, if it were not for their hard work and for the, the many of years of effort they put in before I joined Adobe, there would have been no chance for, for my project or the effects that my project has had in products like Photoshop or, or Illustrator as they've come into the web to have had any of the success that we've had. Can you give me a little information on that? This question has been asked by the community as well. Like uh, when you're the only person, how do you, how do you even get started on an initiative like this? Sure. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, so I don't know if my experience at Alaska is unique. Um, and, and I'm not going to say that it is because this is such a, a crazy area to be um, involved in, but um, I was actually interviewed at Alaska specifically to be an engineer associated to building a design system. Now you can argue whether or not leadership at Alaska really understood what that meant. Um, but they knew that they were, they were looking at their situation and they were looking at the, you know, the design situation, the engineering situation. And, and there had been some people prior to, to my interview who have stirred the pot on this concept. And they were like, we want this. We, we want to explore this space. So I was specifically hired to explore this space and, and see if there was a way that we could bring a design system to Alaska Airlines. So that being said, that's why I say I was a team of one because I was the only engineer associated to delivering code to engineers that was associated to a design system. I did not do all the design, not, not even, uh, I, I did, I barely, I didn't do any of the design, I should actually say. Um, but where you have a very different situation at Adobe or even uh, Salesforce, right? There was the Salesforce lightning design system that was a large design effort with a small technical output, which defined that design space. And then Salesforce web components could then consume from that team and then build out their entire platform. Um, I look at Spectrum the same way because like the Spectrum design system, like you said, Westbrook is a, a large group of people that all came together to basically create that design deliverable. And then you are able to consume from that. Oro didn't work out that way. Oro really started out as an engineering endeavor to really kind of look at the larger aesthetic that Alaska was building at the time and help 
bring people along to turn that into a technological implementation for the easier consumption by engineers in the organization. So it's it's been, for the most part, a primarily an engineering endeavor, and it's been supported in the organization as primarily an engineering endeavor um, with a growing support by design over time. Um, I'm almost four years into this project, and we're really only now starting to have honest conversations about how the engineers actually own the design part of our design system because it's been such an engineering endeavor for the past you know, three and a half years. So that's what makes Oro kind of unique in that space. I have had conversations with other people, um, you know, where the quote unquote design system is largely a design of uh, an engineering effort. But I kind of like, there was a tweet that came out yesterday um, that was kind of on, on, on the, 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 the thread of like, your Figma designs or your sketch designs is not a design system. And then there's a lot of people are going to jump on and say, like, I totally agree. Without engineering and docs, you don't have a design system. That's your design system. And I disagree with that as well. I mean, I 100% believe that it's it's a whole concept where there's equal uh, input from design as there is from engineering. A very it's It's a unique collaborative effort that doesn't exist in many other parts. Um, of technology, as far as I understand, and um, and this is this is where Darian, you know, in in my opinion, was magical because he really understood that that coupling of of design and engineering and and bu- building out Figma docs with API references that directly mirror what a technological output would be, and and really bringing those two spheres together. Um, that is the universe of Alaska. No, that's 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 really cool. My experience has been working with small companies that had no design system or jumping from small companies to Adobe that had a, this vibrant design system ecosystem. And so it's really cool to hear how how you bootstrapped that effort and actually were in the inception moment. I always like was trying to push teams to that place um, before working with Adobe and the amount of time that it takes is a lot. And if you're not going to be, if you don't end up being in a in like that opportunity space for a long time, you're not going to be able to get that sort of thing off the ground. And so it's cool to hear hear about that moment. Um, at Adobe, uh, the Spectrum Design System has been around, I guess, now for at least six years, and possibly more if you accept some name changes and maybe some some goal uh, uh, reorientation over that course. Uh, and what I think is like most exciting about it based in comparison to um, approaches I've had to design systems at previous companies is they, at Adobe, we don't just ship to the web. In fact, we're only moving into the web for a lot of our products for the first time over the last couple of years. Um, And so the design system that we ship supports desktop. It supports uh, native mobile implementations. It supports uh, all sorts of things that I had never ever thought about at the scale of design systems before. Um, but that really means that there's just this huge wealth of information and wealth of uh, decisions that my project Spectrum Web Components gets to build off of uh, and uh, and gets to complain up the chain when things go wrong, 
which is uh, you know probably something that you don't get the opportunity in the scale of a team that you're you're working in. I'm interested in uh, whether or not that was a strategy to get to the web or whether that was just a strategy towards normalization. I wasn't in the team when that happened. And so I can't say whether that was like really lining us up to get into the web uh, as a company. Uh, I can say for, for Spectrum Web Components, we were specifically birthed out of a project that was wanting to move into the web. The editor tool that we were uh, sort of a part of the project of when I joined Adobe um, didn't make it to the web. It didn't make it to product status. Uh, sadly, it's like a little 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 child of mine that's died. But uh, the the design system that was powering it, the web components implementation of Spectrum Design uh, that powered it, lives on. And uh, luckily, that meant that we have uh, over the last year and a half or two years moved into powering uh, the shipping of Photoshop in the web. We also are leveraged in Illustrator on the web. And um, I think what one of the things that we're going to get into, and uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure the tech that's used, but I, I have a pretty good idea that everyone else here uses um, a little piece of technology called Web Components. And, and one of the things that made it possible for us to power bringing Spectrum to Photoshop and to Illustrator, where they are actually bound to these uh, huge WASM packages that relate to their desktop uh, offering, is Web Components. Yeah, um, this is actually something that I'm quite interested in uh, as well. With web components as a technology, I, I think right now there is a, a large predominant uh, trifecta of um, React, Vue, and Angular. And while popularity for some of these major web frameworks may be dwindling, um, one that is rising the ranks is web components. In terms of like web components as the technology you want to build off of, one, how do you sell that as an investment? Like, hey, we should do this in web components. And two, how does that help in supporting some of the projects where you could have probably just gone React? I would love to oh that boy. Chris. <laughs> yeah, Chris, get in here. Because how the hell, where did Fast come from, right? Because... That's not the Microsoft way, baby. Well, it is an interesting story. Um, nobody told us to do it, I guess. So this goes back. Yeah, we can get into this for sure. But it goes back to um, I started at Microsoft on a project called MWF. That was basically Microsoft's design system for marketing sites. Um, we were essentially tech agnostic there. Um, and ultimately, the, the way that I like to say it is we got kicked a lot. Right. We learned a lot through that process. Uh, we were in the design studio at the time. So we handed that off to an engineering team. And then we kind of huddled up and asked ourselves, what would we do better next time? And how would we solve this problem? And we came up with, I think, a three to five year plan. Uh, and now we're four years later and fast exists and it's successful. Now, what does that mean at Microsoft? I think this is an interesting question because tech really starts to matter when you start to look at scale. Uh, and we've been having a lot of these conversations. So at Microsoft, we not only have teams that have made a big bet on React, we have teams that have legacy apps <clears throat> on .NET. We have teams that are starting to build on Blazor. We have teams that are on legacy Angular apps. 
there was a team that had something that they called Angular one and a half because they had started to do a manual migration <laughs> away for a while. When you start to build specifically for a framework, and by that I mean a JavaScript framework, what Darren brought up, which is kind of the most popular, it's really hard to start talking about scale because in order for your design system to really be successful, it has to work for product teams. And tech really does matter there because performance matters, right? Bytes matter, cost matters. And so, hey, if you're, if you're building on React, having a, having a design system that's built on React probably works pretty well for you, right? It's pretty much plug and play. Um, and there's no cost there. But the minute that you start branching out into additional stacks where you have consumers on Angular, like that cost goes up for them, right? The price that they pay uh, in TTVR, which at a large company, those are dollars. You start to have to, you know, at least when you're deciding how, how do you sell web components, I think you start to create a holistic story. Like what are some of the benefits? Some of the benefits of web components are that you get encapsulation. Your component can actually be a component. Web components are, are the standard component model for the web. It's, it's taken a long time. And I think that there's been some really good and healthy criticism about how they were incepted and the standards process and, you know, how long that takes. But the nice thing is that at least hopefully, I guess we have to say hopefully, they can stand the test of time. It becomes your responsibility to start to create good APIs. And that starts to get more and more difficult depending on how many customers you have and how broad of a system you need to support. But I think, you know, when it comes to choosing a tech stack, really it comes down to, you know, and this is a hammer that, that I just fall back on all the time is requirements. Like, what are your requirements, right? Web components work for, for you know, our specific org at Microsoft because we have a goal of doing larger third-party things. We have um, a lot of teams that are coming in and contributing or using different things that we're doing. And across Microsoft, especially, you have people who are on a massive variety of, of different tech stacks, um, some migrating away at any point in time. And so if you're, if you're really talking about scale, I don't know how you can lock someone into a framework and meet their goals. So for us, you know, the natural dovetail has been, you know, in order to ensure that we can deliver for anyone building on the web, we think web components is the best choice there. Now, similar to what Westbrook said, Microsoft has variations as well, specific to iOS and Android for Fluent. So Fast was really, you know, started not to compete with Fluent, but to be an open source project for how we solve the web's problems and how we were going to work. And so we've actually dovetailed a Fluent UI web component package that's built on Fast, but we, we partnered really closely with Fluent to, to work with them to create a web component offering because we see that problem of scale only uh, becoming crazier. So when, um, when, it, when it comes to, uh, like when it comes to choosing web component technology inside of an organization, I mean, there's, there's a lot of driving factors, like, you know, everybody's kind of pointing out, um, you know the, the 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 concept of having technology agnostic of framework is so astronomically huge to me, but also astronomically terrifying to other people. They can they kind of throw this conversation into a slightly different direction. I mean, like, and to hear from somebody we haven't really heard from yet at all today. I want to, I would, Corey, 
I mean, you you went out on a limb and said, like, you know what, I'm going to make this thing called Shoelace, and I'm going to do it using web components, and I don't care what anybody else thinks. And and I know you also have very strong opinions about other framework communities. So turning the mic over to Corey, what's, uh, what's your two cents on this space? I mean, in the context of a design system, it makes a lot of sense to build, you know, UI primitives in a way that various teams can consume them. Without a framework agnostic component model, you have designers that spec out components and then the React team builds it. And then maybe there's an Angular team, they build their own version because they can't use the React one. And then there's a Vue team and they build their version for the same reasons. And now you've duplicated efforts thrice and you have potential inconsistencies in how each one looks and behaves. And if we can agree on that, at least agree on that statement that you can't use those components in different frameworks, right? Then the only logical conclusion is that it's a bad idea to do it that way. It's just inefficient and it results in a divergence of UX. So web components kind of help solve that. I think they get a lot of hate because they're kind of new on the scene and people fear like these things are going to take over my framework. And that's not the message that I think that's the message that came across, but that's not the message that we're trying to send. Um, you know, this is a new platform feature. You know, people are uh, fatigued from the old framework wars and everything. And at this point, it's just a matter of showing them how, how these things can be useful, how they can actually save you time. They're not trying to take over your world. Well, you, you bring up an interesting point um, that made me remember um, there, there was a conference. Uh, I don't remember the conference. It, you, I'm sure if you Google around uh, conferences from Nathan Curtis, you'll come across this sooner or later. One of the the things that he showed when he was talking about design systems at scale in organizations is the exact problem you just kind of talked about, Corey, is that like, you have a designer who specs out a thing, and then you have a React team who builds it, and you have an Angular team that builds it, and you have a Vue team that builds it. And that was the trajectory that Alaska Airlines was on as well. Because when I came there, they were like, we don't have a standard of front end. We're a Microsoft shop. We use a lot of Microsoft back end stuff, but we don't have a standard on front end and teams are allowed to experiment, right? And so like everybody was everywhere. So I was like, I have to go with web components because, and, and the fuel that I kind of, or I should actually say like the evidence that I showed towards this thinking when I was challenged was from, um, from Nathan, where he had this really great slide where he illustrated that you have a design thing, which is like your single source of truth, right? But it's a picture and you can't ship a picture. So then you have a version one that goes to your React team, right? Great. They built it. And then version one also went to the Angular team and then version one went to the Vue team. When you start to look at this over time now, your design component changes, right? I mean, things change. Nothing is concrete forever. So let's imagine that the design, there's a version two, right? Now you look at those different teams that are using the different tech stacks. The React team, they're like way too busy in another feature. So they don't update that design thing. So now they're behind the curve. Angular team, they're on the ball and they did the version two. So they're moving forward. So then you continue to look at that over time and you see the massive regression of consistency between these individual teams because not everybody is keeping up at the pace that design is working at. And this was the big selling point for an organization like Alaska, who we are seriously strapped for resources. We're a very, very small engineering team trying to manage an entire airline. I'm even going to throw design tokens in there as like, you know, another part of this entire system where 
we had a meeting one day where there was an amazing amount of effort that was put in by all the different teams to change a color because the color combination was not accessible. All these teams went out and did the work. Every team did the work individually. Every team shipped a different color. Every team made an accessible color, but every team also landed on a different hex value. So everybody did something different to meet a similar goal. So that's when I, I jumped on that immediately and I implemented design tokens within the organization. And sure enough, I mean, within a year, once I had everybody on design tokens, we ran into a similar problem again. And it was a non-starter. Like we changed the token, everybody updated their NPM package. The accessibility issue was solved across all of our platforms. It's a done thing, right? So the more you can put your tooling into these things that people don't have to put a whole lot of effort to stay in on top of, that's where the real win has been for me. The more we look at building out our front ends, our experiences using that kind of a tool set, that's the game changer, right? And that when... When you're trying to sell something to an organization, which, you know, going all the way back to that original question, this is not five years ago, right? When we were trying to sell design systems to people five years ago, it's like, oh, whatever, witchcraft, I don't care. There is so much evidence right now that this is a reality that it doesn't take much to do a little bit of research and come up with a lot of great evidence to appeal to your leadership that this can happen if these things happen, right? Yeah, uh, I, I want to dive a little bit backwards towards that original question too. Like, um, how do you start if then, like, where, where do you even begin? I, I'd say that captioning your design decisions, I, I say design as the big, um, like, this is how we do development patterns. This is how we do design patterns. Like when you get, or when, when everybody does that, capture those in like the easiest format you can, even if it's a Word document. So that way you can start snapshotting some of these decisions that have been made along the way. Then when it comes time to like say, hey, we actually want some more resources to do this, you have a good starting place uh, to showcase some of the decisions you made, alleviating a lot of that upfront work of putting together your, your standards for design and development together. Yeah, I, I really like that, that Darian. And I think a lot of people get stuck on the, I'd like to create a design system question, which is really weird because most people who ask that, that I've seen ask this, that question, they already have a product. And that means there's already a design system in there. You just really gotta get to that, that documentation. Like the, these are the decisions we've already made so that you can not make them differently the next time. Yeah, in, in the lack thereof, um... One of the things uh, when I was working with Chris was realizing we had put together like 11 different ways on how to show an item was selected and whether or not that was what we wanted to have, like realizing that not putting together that standard ended up with a lot more cognitive load for our end users to have. That meant that hey, this is something we should standardize. By putting that together, you can reduce some of those areas where, uh, or improve your system by just even doing that initial audit of documenting what's there. And I, you know, one thing that, that occurs to me is, you know, so I, I think I remember this question was earlier on. And so I was actually just thinking about it, Dale, when, when you were talking, and that's that, uh, two things. One, you know, if you don't have a design system, if it is just total chaos, you know, you can start with just how you organize and work. 
I think that'll be attractive to people, you know? Um, and so start in your area in terms of how you approach the problem. And as Darian said, like layer in documenting those decisions. But specifically as an engineer speaking to like my design counterparts, you have a lot of power traditionally in this area. One of the things that I will say to designers who are saying, hey, like, how do I get my teams to adopt and use this? And I say, spec with it. So I, I don't come from a traditional background. I have a CS degree. I work and started, you know, in development at a small company in Woodinville, Washington, where we were, you know, doing some web design. And what I found in this industry is that if you spec something very similar to the company I worked at, if we, if, if a landscape architect specced something, people built with it. It's just what you did. And I've, I found that to be pretty similar with many of the engineering teams that I've worked with is that the bent is you don't rock the boat. If it says to use that, they use that. And so you do have a lot of power as a designer, even if you're just starting out to start to carve out opportunities to tell that story. I would also argue that on the development side too, for those uh, documenting patterns, things like documentation, like, Hey, this is how we lay out how we showcase a component or uh, Hey, this is how we, uh, standardize things like the API, what we call certain pieces. So it extends a lot further than just visuals in design. It's something that can be used to set standards of practice for uh, your entire development or design community at your company. And I think um, an, an, an interesting trick that I've employed that kind of helps me have easier conversations with people too, is that when you're, when you're specking out these things, and especially when you're working with a technology like uh, custom elements, the more you could adhere to the engineering specification that is HTML itself and abide by those same rules, the easier it is to come out of, I don't, I don't want to say arguments, but confrontation or different opinions. Because one thing that has been a challenge for me um, throughout my entire career working in this space is somebody's going to conceive an idea and they're going to create a specification. Um, words get invented. Concepts get invented, right? But when, you're, when you find yourself in a situation where somebody is saying one thing and then somebody's trying to say another thing and there's a misalignment on what things should be called or how something should work, in this space is super unique because we can really kind of look back at the HTML spec and say like, well, this is how things are supposed to work. So what are we correctly adhering to? And what are we just simply disregarding, right? Because then that's the, the disregarding part of something you can look at and say like, should we really be doing that, right? That's totally against the grain from years and years and years and years of really smart people, people way smarter than me working on stuff like this. <laughs> So yeah, yeah so... we just all fell asleep. It's, it's fine. Oh. <laughs> nice. It's it's not so early here on the East Coast. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> but I think those decisions are are important to track. And uh, you know, to the to this question here from from Ivan Stork, like once you have those decisions, getting them documented is priority zero, maybe priority negative one if if there's a higher level than zero. And, and, and for me, you know, to, to, to address his question, uh, I think that buying documentation is the cheapest and fastest way to get any decision 
down on paper. Granted, if you ask three different engineers what documentation system to buy, they might all buy different ones. And that's a whole other bag of worms. Getting something on paper that you can say, this is the rule as fast as possible and as as like in stone as possible, I think it's, it's highly important when you're starting a system, particularly with a team that you're working on. I'm interested in hearing a little bit from Corey about where he went on this because I don't know much about how the shoelace documentation uh, is built. I know he's been doing a lot of work on it um, as he continues to scale the library. What can you say, Corey, about the way that you decided to to document uh, the shoelace library? Thanks, Westbrook. Uh, You know, documentation is important. Without it, people can't really use what you've built. So I put a lot of heart, a lot of effort, a lot of sweat into it. to, to look at Ivan's question about like, there's some suggestions like Storybook, Docusaurus and such. I've used both of those before. I've used a number of different things and I settled on something that I, you know, it's, it's probably too simple for most systems. Um, I'll probably outgrow it at some point, but the reason I settled on um, Doxify, which basically uh, it's, it's like a spa, right? That you just load up and then you can throw Markdown at it and it sort of translates things. So you, you do your documentation in pure Markdown, you link to it, and, you know, when you're running it in the browser, you just click on that link and it just renders a full HTML page. So it's, it's just easy. Um, but the important thing about that isn't how Docsify works. It's that it gets out of my way and lets me focus on putting that information out there. And since it's marked down, uh, I can just use that and, you know, migrate to perhaps 11D in the future or something else. It's, it's just a way to get that information out there in a usable way with simple navigation. I, I've had... I've had issues with Storybook, and I'm not going to say bad things about any product out there, but I struggled with it quite a bit, um, you know, in the world of custom elements, web components, and Storybook. I think things have gotten a little bit better. I think they're starting to pivot the project to be more documentation first rather than a playground where you can just toggle, you know, knobs and whatnot. And that's, that's good because I've also seen a lot of places launch their documentation with nothing but a storybook. And, and it sort of falls flat in its face. I, I think the modern ones, I'm speaking from a couple of years ago, but the more modern implementations, I've seen better ones where it reads more like an actual website. And I think that's important. People shouldn't go and just see a bunch of components. Uh, your design system is way more than just components. You need to document your tokens. You need to document patterns. You need to document everything. And I think Storybook does one thing really good right now, and it's showing components. So to me, it's more of a developer tool. Uh, whether you build it or buy it yourself, I don't know. I, I, I built mine out of necessity. I think there's a gap out there for a good documentation tool to come out and sort of take off. But yeah. Yeah, it's uh, totally... No, I was going to say, it, it's it's totally a, a unique decision um, per your use case. I mean, is is your, you know, are you shipping documentation purely for internal? I mean, in that case, something like Storybook would be totally okay. Um, in in my situation, the, the funny thing is I built a React website to put web components in it just to prove to people that web components would work inside of React. That was it. <laughs> I had no intention of building a document website whatsoever. That wasn't even on my horizon of things to do at the time. And, and, and then everybody's like, does this actually work in React? And I'm like, okay, fine, I'll prove it, right? So I started building out stuff in React just to prove that it could be done. And then as I started building more things, they naturally ended up inside of this sandbox that I created. Then everybody started saying like, 
well, there's so much stuff in there. We need navigation or we need more information. We need documentation. And then over time, the oral site that you see right now is still the exact same thing that I started three years ago as this sandbox just to prove that it works. Getting your documentation story, it really in my opinion, is 100% based on what it is you need to achieve and who you need to communicate to. Yeah, I like what I like what Westbrook said as well. I think in response to Ivan, which was, uh, what was it? Build to buy in, or no, uh, buy to build and then build to polish off. And for me, it's just a it's just a matter of like where I have the ability to put my time. If I build something, that's code that has to be maintained. <laughs> so as a maintainer of a not small open source project currently, I would say it's not worth it right now. Um, you know, we have work to do on the quality of our documentation. And so uh, having a place to put it, if it takes longer for you to build that thing than to document it and get it out, where are you really spending your time on what matters most? Right. So similar to Dale. And again, going all the way back to one of the first things I said, like it really comes down to requirements, like use the right tool for the job. Totally agree. Progress over perfection, right? Yeah, like, you know, in, in the same sense, like Corey's talking about, like, one of the things that we quick, I quickly migrated to was I got really tired of duplicating demos that I was creating for an individual component into the React site. So I was like, well, why don't I just get the exact same thing from one place into another? And then I migrated everything over to Markdown documents. And and, and if you don't know this, anybody listening to right now, that you can easily integrate a, um, a web component into a markdown document because at the end of the day, it's still friggin' HTML. That is like a superpower to me. So all of our documentation is all just markdown. And then our doc site is merely just a shell that knows where all of these Markdown documents are across GitHub. And then I just have a transformer that turns Markdown into HTML and poof, you have an instant website. So, you know, we put a system in place where when I work on a feature with a component, I'm also working on the demo of that component as well, of course, right? But then that exact same thing, when that gets committed to the repository, that immediately shows up on the doc site without me having to do anything, which is super wicked cool cool um so i know we have uh, people still asking questions we may have some people who have joined recently i just want to uh, preface that we we're taking questions through our original tweet thread which is pinned to the top here and we also have a hashtag developing design systems to where uh, you can tag your question with that and we can try to answer it while we're on this here I, I do want to pull the uh, question that's at the top right now from uh, Vu on how do you define systems at scale? I, I know we've talked a bit about design systems in, in general, but I think this would be a quick, easy one to, to knock off here. Like, what is scale? Oh, how do we get everybody at a, a similar baseline so that way when we get updates to uh, things like our design system that everybody gets those updates with the m most minimal lifts in engineering <laughs> across the board. So scale, scale is tricky. Um, I, I totally hear what you're saying, um, Darian, that like, you know, the concept of scale is to get things out as, as much as possible. But um, I kind of scale to me is, is, one of two scenarios it's either managed or unmanaged it's 
you have the scale from which you're working on things and you have relative control over what happens um, or how, how it's used, I should say. It's like if you're on a small enough team and a small enough engineering team and everything you put out and you you know how all your users are using it and, and you have a, a relatively easy way of seeing how everybody's using it, that's a, that's a manageable scale, right? Um, but then you, then you get to quote unquote web scale, right? And then that's, that's when you have something that's out in the world that you have no idea what people are doing with it. And you have no way of knowing what people are doing with it. And you have no way of controlling what people are doing with it. I mean, you can have documentation and specifications all day long, but that doesn't matter. Right. I mean, people, if they want to bend light, they will bend light. So, you know, I mean, I would, I would even argue that, um, Oro is somewhere in between that. Um, you know, for a long time, I had that direct control and direct understanding, but we're now going into a place where engineers across the whole organization, from which the vast majority of them I don't deal with on a daily basis, they're starting to use the system. And I don't know what they're doing with it, right? They're building things and shipping things. And I'm like, oh, look, that showed up there today. That's pretty cool. Westbrook, I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to, to, to your scenario. And Corey, you're 100% in that space. I mean, like, I really have, like, do you have any idea what people are doing with Shoelace? You know, and um, same thing with fast, right? And uh, so it's it's when you get your head wrapped around that space that you operate in such a way that you have unknown number of users who are doing unknown number of things. You have to make decisions with an understanding that you could potentially ruin somebody's entire day with a rollout or an update or a release, right? And and you have to be very sensitive to that. And um, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of curious. So like how you guys see that as well. So, uh, you know, pointing to, to Corey, I, I have some rough numbers here that say you're above 20 million hits on JS Deliver a month. Does that count as scale? Well, you're short me about 30 million last I checked, unless we had a significant job overnight. <laughs> um, oh, my numbers are from October. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's this thing has seen uh, some pretty good growth. Uh, over the last year or so. And uh, yeah, I, I have no idea what most people are doing with it. And I'm not going to put analytics or any sort of telemetry in there. You know, it's something that it's so tempting because I really do want to better understand how people are using this thing. And I just I just don't have any idea. And the pressure's on to make things as bulletproof as possible because when you don't know where it's being used, you have to wonder like, well, how could this break if it were used in any number of random situations? I would argue that intentionally building a component for specific use cases is a lot easier because you know in a, you know a reasonable boundary where they're going to land in a project it's a tough one i don't i don't know well, i don't really have a good answer for that i have some i mean i have some jealousy i think that one of the things that i've appreciated about the apis that you've put out Corey, is like the dialogue right like you can like you're building shoelace for a specific scenario and you have some specific layouts we've we've talked about this i i know i've talked with people about this and, and given this is like i wish that i could make those same decisions even if i'm stepping away from like fast and i'm looking just across like microsoft properties for fluent i can i can come up just off the top of my head with 15 or 20 layouts for dialogues that are going to require a ton of style bloat and <laughs> adding each of those as the way 
is going to make a component that nobody's going to be able to use because it's going to be too damn heavy. We do take a position from a scale standpoint as we're going to give you kind of baseline and let you drop that content in. It's less than ideal, but the alternative is that I, I start hoisting requirements. I think if you're building something for yourself, you get to kind of determine the scale as well, though, you know? And if you're curious where to start, I mean, I would start with what the most common things and common primitives, you know, start in the smallest corner and start painting from there. So I see we have somebody who requested uh, to speak. Um, I'm going to I'm going to let them into the room, uh, see that they've been waiting patiently. And if if you had a question for the group, feel free to ask and we'll see what we can get to. Yeah. Hello. Um so I, I just had one question. I've been uh, really useful information, by the way. Thank you for that. Um, so I currently work as a design system, and we are like sometimes we have um, a little bit of a tough time bridging the gap between design and engineering, since how we're using design tokens now and everything. So there's a lot of tools out there. We've used uh, Sketch, we use uh, Figma, we've used Framer, and everything. But in terms of the design tokens in itself, are never like a one-to-one thing between design and engineering. So I just wanted to ask, like, in terms of, you know, everyone that is here, kind of, um, what is the overall thought in, in this whole thing? Like, what is the overall process? Because in, in our case, um, we were using a tool in, in Figma specifically that they have like a, like a plugin for design tokens, but it's not like, that robust as the design tokens that we have in the code base so um yeah so yeah you're kind of speaking to the issue that right in code we have a single source of truth and a concept of a design token which is shipped to all of our engineering but having that like a one place to edit a token and it affects engineering as well as design am i am i paraphrasing that accurately yeah yeah that's basically yeah what i mean yeah i mean if somebody has an if anybody has an answer for that i would love it because we struggle with that too <laughs> um, yeah I, I feel like you say we were because like I've, I've tried a bunch of things like i've tried the 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 salesforce tokens engine i've tried ds i've tried like a bunch of things and there's always like a big gap between, you know, all of them. So I just wanted to hear some thoughts in, in, in general. Yeah, I mean, I know the sketch community tried doing some stuff in that space. You know, we in Alaska, we've totally moved over to Figma. And and again, like me, like I'm not a Figma expert and I don't even want to be a Figma expert, but I look at Figma and like this is this is an amazing design tool. And what is stopping Figma? from helping us solve that problem. I mean, if there's anybody on this call who has like really in-depth knowledge and Darian, if you have anything to give to this, <laughs> I would love an answer because this sucks. This is a real problem. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. And I'll, I'll speak from the design standpoint. Uh, I, I have a decent enough developer knowledge that I can, uh, I, I've written custom stuff for Figma using their API but this problem spans a lot more than just what you can do with plugins. Uh, it's also part process because um, design is going to design to design and you can't rely on designers having the coding knowledge to go through GitHub and update. It's a 
big issue of custom tooling and custom processes and kind of changing the way we we think about that i mean until you have a until you have something that it has a low barrier of entry right because we've written custom plugins for our our color tools so we have a color library that ensures accessible colors um, by pushing contrast um, and that's really difficult to represent in figma because it depends on either luminance values or a background fill color so we've had to write a custom plugin for that. It makes it difficult when a designer is tasked by their leadership outside of the horizontal team that tells them, you know, oh, you need to illustrate light and dark mode. Well, dark mode just happens if you use the system. You know, it's one of the, the benefits. And so I think process is a, is a huge part of this beyond tooling because process is something that you that has a low barrier to overhead to a certain extent. So for instance, yesterday we had our fifth design engineering handoff for a single control set that we're building but it is you know a significant undertaking and i really value that time syncing with designers because my goal when my team goes to build these things is i want to make sure that we understand like the underlying design principle that you're trying to drive at right i'm gonna make it really easy for people to to compose the right thing and i want to make it really painful to work outside of that because I want to almost encapsulate your goals in code, right? And then there's there's discussions about what the principle is versus what the policy is, right? So uh, yesterday there was an element of, hey, from a design standpoint, we don't want to do this, but we also understand that you know our leadership changes their mind a lot and we want to try new things to see what might drive new revenue into the product. And so from a principle standpoint, we're going to enable more in the code, but we'll have a design policy that explicitly gives do's and don'ts, right? So there's, there's a bit of a, an ejection seat there. But I, I definitely would agree that I think process is super important because unless you are at a company that is going to invest in solving those problems or provide you overhead to invest in solving that design to code problem, which is significant. And I'll say there are multiple teams at Microsoft that I've talked to that are, that are, you know, discussing this right now. Um, it's going to be cost prohibitive to some extent. So the, the, the conversation on process is interesting to me. Um, Cause process is just that it's process and it's easy to not follow a process. And in, in, in a conference I attended years ago, one, when I was kind of just starting on this journey with Alaska, um, I went around and, and grabbed anybody and everybody who was talking about design systems at the time and, and uh, all engineers, by the way. And I was asking them, like, in your environment, what is the, what is the number one hardest thing that you have to deal with when uh, working with the design system? And the, the, the unanimous answer was people not following the process coloring outside of the lines, inventing things that don't exist, doing things that a predefined component can't do. And I run, run into these challenges and we're trying to put processes in place and gates up that, you know, if a designer mutates an existing component design, that's supposed to throw up red flags to say, you're changing something, you need to have a broader conversation about the change that you have, not just give that to the engineer because the off-the-shelf component isn't going to do that. 
right? How do, how do you guys deal with that when, when the process breaks down, right? Like even in this token thing, right? A designer just invented a new hex. You know why? I don't know, but they did. They invented a new color. It's in the design. The engineer is trying to build it for their feature. And they're like, there's no design token for that. What am I supposed to do? Right? So how, how do you guys deal with that? I mean, as an, uh, it's probably probably not going to be appreciated. Uh, I, I tell engineering to push back. Like there's there's no reason that we can't have conversations about this. And if there's I mean, a legitimate fair. business case, if there's a legitimate business case, right? I mean, right. and that's that's a little bit of, of what we ran into problematically when we had an executive vice president saying everyone must use this, and then we had legit product teams saying we can't use that, we need you to modify it for this. And then we had a horizontal design team that, you know, at times didn't meet the goal of being able to deliver for their product teams, which is really the, I mean, that's, that's the only goal, you know? So the question really becomes is, you know, why did you, why did you do it? Right. What's the, what's the goal? What's the intent? Is that solving a clear scenario? Um, or was it that, you know, like we do with code, we felt spicy on Saturday and decided to try something new and we liked it. So it stuck. I'm in the realm of pushing back to on that. Uh, in, in the interest of uh, some of the people that are uh, waiting to ask questions, I know I saw Michael, but Philip, I brought on, I was curious if you had a question for, uh, for us on the panel. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for letting me talk. Uh, I actually had two things. One for tokens, uh, my team at Maze recently just ran into this as well, and we did a bunch of research on it. There's a great um, design token W3C group that's trying to solve this, so hopefully they can solve this in the long term. But in the short term, there's a tool called Specify App um, that is also trying to align itself to the W3C, and they're trying to make it so you can store your tokens in one place and then move them somewhere else. And then the tool that we actually ended up going with and also helps you with documentation is something called Supernova. So those are those are some things to check out. Um, and then my question is about um, visual regression testing. So trying to build stuff at scale, how do you actually test your CSS? Um, because with JavaScript, it's a lot easier to actually test the like functionality or the unit test of your components, but I would really curious to hear your thoughts about testing the styling, the visual aspects of the code. So visual regression testing is, is both hugely important and immensely annoying. Um, but uh, for, for our library, Spectrum Web Components, we are actually testing as a feature that it's going to be released in the near future against 32 different variants of our design system in every CI pass, which is kind of bonkers. Uh, so we have color stops that change. We have uh, size stops that change. We also manage left to right and right to left text delivery. And that's 16 versions. And then we have a second design system that is part of this release that we're talking about that is a like on the same sort of lexical delivery of spectrum but is targeting our Creative Cloud Express uh, product suite that has a little bit more of a, uh, of a consumer bend uh, than some of our other products and has some different requirements because of that. And to power our visual regression testing, we actually pair our, our storybook uh, component story format output with 
a tool from a, a team called Modern Web and their web test runner solution, which we use in our JavaScript scope for our unit tests, but then also has a plugin for you to be able to do visual regression, whether you wanted to run that in Playwright or Puppeteer or something like Browser Stack or whatnot. And so we have that running in our CI. We leverage CI specifically to prevent browser version, OS version difficulties uh, between various members on the team. It's been really amazing because Spectrum Web Components like works, as I mentioned, with the larger Spectrum design team. We consume some of our CSS from that team and their visual regression suite is not quite as expansive. And so in a lot of cases, we're catching things for them post their releases based off of those visual regression tests. So it's highly important that you find a system that you're comfortable with making that that possible in your project. Yeah, when we were talking about scale before, <laughs> visual regression testing at scale is hard. I did not know, uh, Westbrook, I'm going to follow up with you later on what uh, the visual regression testing suite that you were just talking about. I did not know that existed. We use the OpenWC stuff for our unit testing, but I didn't see visual in there. So we're actually doing to try not to have a giant test suite that runs all the scenarios like Westbrook is talking about. We've, we've integrated visual regression testing at the individual component level. We're only doing a test on the component and its variants with each individual release of the component, not the entire system as a whole. Um, to try to catch things that way, but yeah, it's a, it, it's it, it's laborious. Probably one of the things that falls toward the bottom of the list when building out a design system, depending on the size of your team and the resources you have available, because of the amount of effort it takes to go into it. Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to chime in until the the visual regression testing. So I don't know if if you know, a specific technology has been mentioned before, but in terms of um, the component development suite, I were using something called Stenso.js, which is basically done by Anne, and they have like a kind of like a basics on, on visual regression testing with uh, Puppeteer and stuff, which is pretty cool. But um, in terms of when you deploy the code base into a CI, sometimes it takes like a lot of time and there's, also discrepancies between font families and stuff like that. So we were doing additional research in that sense um, because of that reason. You know, it takes a lot of overhead um, and, and development time as well. So we've kind of going with uh, something called Chromatic, which is if you're using Storybook, it might be worth looking at because it basically takes the story and actually does the screenshot testing on the cloud. And, you know, it. Sometimes people, like in terms of companies, it's a little bit harder to sell it because it's on the cloud. It's not locally. But it's a pretty cool tool because it, it, it tells you like an actual changes and stuff. And and you can see the versioning, um, you know, the, the type of version and when that change happened and stuff like that. So um, I just wanted to mention that one. Sweet. Thank you. I do want to address this question by Eduardo that I've posted up at the top here. Um, thank you to those who asked questions. In terms of the web component community and talking about stacks and which is the best one to start, like uh, base components using lit or other libraries. Um, like fast. <laughs> like Watch fast. yourself, Darian. Hey, hey, <laughs> I, let me, how about, I'll, I'll read this. I, I answered this offline, but I also have a thought on this as well. 
Um, should the web component community align on an opinionated stack, lit, fast, other amalgamation of the two in terms of tooling and library to put the focus on adoption and progress versus fragmented divisions on what's best practices, similar to what we see today with Angular versus React? So I think that if there's goals for injecting opinion, like there are the web component best practices and that there's a good spot there, but, you know, existing standards bodies are a great place for this. Or booting up new ones, the design token community group, open UI, these various places where the goal is greater standardization, right? Um, but <clears throat> truthfully, I think the marketplace of ideas has been great for, you know, filling in gaps where we don't yet have agreement. I saw a tweet a couple of weeks ago, which was like, why are we still all building various design systems? Shouldn't there just be one? Like, couldn't there be one that's flexible? Um, we are trying to do something like that long term, but it's it's difficult, right? Because you have to inject um, what you think is the most common opinion or provide hooks to do all the things in a very cheap way. So like, I think depending on what it is, right? If we're talking about developing new standards, there's a process for that. And I'd encourage everybody to, to get involved with that if, if possible in some place in an area that you're passionate about. But secondly, I think that for emerging opportunities and things that, there is no standard for yet like the marketplace of ideas is great to push things ahead i mean you see this with browsers right um for as much as there are you know some stalwarts and some folks who have a much larger share there's some really cool things being pushed and brought up by all browser vendors right now which you know you see something pop up uh and, and get shipped uh, somebody sent me something that just shipped in Firefox the other day. And I was like, great, I'm going to go talk to our web flat team about that because I want that everywhere. So how can we help to to push that forward? Uh, so I think it kind of depends on what it is, but as far as like a standardized stack, really what, you know, and I won't speak for the lit team there, but like what we're offering at the very base at fast element is a thin wrapper around the standard because you're writing a lot of these things. The current approach for building web components just with the browser isn't really conducive. You're going to duplicate a lot of code. There's going to be a lot of different things that you're going to repeat. Um, and so the library kind of just exists to fill that space in. Now, it's definitely possible that as the standard moves forward, we can start to bring those things in and create more alignment. And I think we're seeing an acceleration of that. But I would say as far as like one stack to rule them all, I've never seen that go well. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think we should align on a specific opinion regarding that. You know, we have lit, we have fast that are, as Chris said, both thin layers around, um, you know, web components. They're basically just reducing boilerplate. They're not adding an entire framework. So you got to be careful when you talk about frameworks versus libraries, because it's not a web component framework. It's a library that enables you to build platform-based components, right? But we also have like things like Haunted, right, where you can use React hooks in your web components. Um, we have one called hybrids, which takes a more functional approach. And all these libraries and tools, um, they generate custom elements that you can use anywhere. I, I think it's good to have these flavors because it means we can build these web components the way we want to build them, but they're still completely interoperable with various frameworks. Now the question of, is it efficient to bake in the overhead of each library? Well, that's, that's a valid question. I would argue no, it's probably not, but it's still probably better to absorb a small payload from something like Litter Fast than it is to absorb the full size of multiple frameworks and try to get them to play well together. 
totally agree to it because of how quickly and new people are to web components as it's being adopted people come from different models of what components look like having those different flavors allows people to work uh, just like Corey said with how they they're used to making components so it reduces a lot of that mental lift getting started and diving into web components there's Another question I want to pull up to our community group here. Alexandra says that uh, they feel often that design systems are not seen as a set of rules, but just a library of UI elements. How do you guard against arbitrary decisions, like things that are were already solved entering the design system? Doing a, an audit of what exists right off the bat is super helpful. It allows you to decide whether or not we actually want this as a standard or if we can throw it into the backlog of things to look at again. But I'm curious if y'all have any other thoughts uh, on this as well. Well, governance plays a large role in that, I believe. Um, I mean, there needs, once something is created and and then it, it is out for mass consumption, the randomization of things or things eating into the system um, becomes a paramount thing to to maintain control of. So, you know, I, I feel that as systems get larger and larger and larger, and the problems start to become more complex, and your your user base continues to grow 10x, the more you have to really have a stringent policy, if you will. Like I said before, this is difficult to manage sometimes of, of governance. Um, I mean, in, in one side of the sphere, in the engineering sphere, this, I feel this is easier to solve than it is in the design sphere because the designer can change something, invent something, push something, and then an engineer is, is asked to implement it. But from the engineering perspective, as far as the design system is concerned, if somebody wants to fork your repo and do something wild and crazy with it, if it's open source, you can't stop it, right? That's the name of the game. And, you know, Godspeed to them. But for the design system itself, uh, you know, that's, that's always going to come in the form of a pull request because not everybody's going to have push access in your company to that, uh, that repository. So um, that system of governments really starts to actually just bubble up to the top right there. It's like, oh, you, you have a, a new variant you invented. Why? Right. Where did this come from? Who owns this? Where, you know, who was the decision maker on this? Or did you just invent this because you want to? Right. So that system of government governance really, really starts to become a, a paramount part of the entire process at scale. I think uh, along with governance or, or rules, it's important to make doing it, quote unquote, right, the easiest possible path. And that's not necessary to say that you should make it hard to do other things. Like almost to the point where I might not agree that governance and rules is a, a good standard around which to build a design system. But uh, if you, you know, we, we talked a little bit about tokens. If you have tokens and you can consume them really easily, whether you're doing it in Figma or whether you're doing it in your development or whether you're doing it in XD, sorry for the Adobe ad, uh, then you are going to get designers and developers using those things. Like if you miss a scale of rounding and people have to do that custom, then yeah, they're gonna start having a lot of different custom rounded corners. If you miss a, a style of button, 
then they're going to start adding extra sorts of buttons to your system. But if you can make it easy to say, oh, I want a button in this UI and it needs to be like really visible. So whether you call that emphasized or CTA or, or whatever, it's in your system. They're going to build those, these larger patterns and they're going to build these new patterns on those existing realities because they're there and they're easy to use. If they're not easy to use, if you're like, oh yeah, the rule is it's a five pixel border radius and that's the rule because I set it, not because it's in code somewhere or in a design tool somewhere, but because I set it, then of course you're gonna get a lot of different border radiuses as future designers and future developers get in there. And so for me, it's just so much about making things easy. Not to say that our work is easy, but make it easy and they will come. Well, you're, you're saying like the, if the tools are so easy to use, why are inconsistencies being introduced? I mean, is that, is that the argument? No, I, I actually say if the tools are easy to use, they're likely not going to, we're lazy. I'm lazy. I assume <laughs> everyone I work with is lazy. I assume even designers are lazy, even though they're like so cool with their like, boxes and, and rectangles and circles and things. But uh, we're all real lazy. And so if you could make it easy, they're going to tread that path. And yeah. only when my actual need is different than the options available to, to me, will you start to get that deviation. I'm not going to go in and make up a new, a new thing just to do it. If like, I could literally just be like, accept existing thing, you know, regardless of, you know, what's that, whether it's, colors or radiuses or buttons or layouts yeah if someone will make a decision that i don't have to think about i'm i'm more towards that than having to spread my time over multiple problems yeah i mean i guess what i'm saying before like a system of government governance it's it's not a, a gate right what it what it's really intended to be is is a, a way to inform people of the decisions that are being made right because you know one of the, like when i was talking before about uh, being at that conference and you know other engineers telling me what it's you know hard to work with design systems one person did bring up the fact that the design system tells the engineer what to do and the engineer is powerless in that scenario. So whenever they're being asked to do something that the design system doesn't answer the question for them, they have to figure out how to hack around it, right? And and so like I took that to heart and and one of the things I work really hard with in our organization is to ensure that everybody has a voice. Like we we have a bi-weekly user group where we meet with our core user and contributors to to the Oro design system and you know there's I encourage everybody to make issues. Like if you, if whatever, whatever crosses your mind as a potential problem or an impedance or something that slows you down, like let us know. And, and we can have a conversation about that because you may be telling us something that we don't even understand is a problem yet. You're there to be an accellerator. You're not right. there to be the, the all encompassing problem solver. Right. And, and I don't think you can. So, you know, doubling down on what Westbrook said is, you're not going to be able to prevent people from doing bad things. You're not no. going to be able to, to stop that because guess what? They'll just eject. They will. They just won't use it. Um, and they'll tell their leadership that there were reasons they couldn't use it and that will be trusted and, and whatnot. So, you know, rather than spending time pr trying to prevent people from doing bad things, except that they will, but try and make it really, really easy for them to do the right thing. 
and to create a space for them to, as Dill and Westbrook both have said, like to provide that feedback back, right? Um, if something's not meeting requirements, then we we have another opportunity to grow the system. So one thing I want to say is that we're almost two hours into this, and I am honestly amazed at how many people have been hanging through this entire conversation. <laughs> this is epic. This is I'm 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 impressed. I figured this was going to be kind of like. A, a band doing their first show in front of their friends and their moms and there's only like eight people there this is crazy cool thank you everybody just want to put that out there and hi mom yeah <laughs> everyone on this call is probably just like who is this guy <laughs> sweet um I, I know we're coming up really close to the end um we uh i'll i'll throw up one more question uh, that was asked by Corey and then we can wrap up this thing and, and let people have the rest of their morning back. I, I just lost it off my screen. You know, I've, I've had so many people follow me during this that my notifications blew up. So I don't know that I can find it. I think it was what's the most common misconception that you hear about web components. Yes. Yes. That one. Oh, Who's even using web components? That's that's a big one. Are they a thing yet? Well, no, everyone everyone has heard them here, I think. Well, I think the the most common misconception about web components is that when the conversation comes up today, it's still the same conversation that we had five years ago. Right? And and the concept of web components has been around for God almost fifteen years you know, so, somewhere in that neighborhood. And, 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 you know, the amazing amount of work that uh, uh, Google did with um, Polymer to just to even just to figure out how this environment was supposed to work has really kind of like done two things for the community, in my opinion. One, it really kind of put out there that this is just a highly experimental thing that comes with a massive polyfill that does not even come close to living up to the features and expectations that something like React does, right? And then when React came into the community, I mean, like all of the things that I have issue with React, like one of the things I definitely will say that they nailed it on is that they really, really brought the concept of a component architecture into modern day web development. They it, that's where everybody really rallied around the idea, in my opinion. So when you start saying things like web components, they immediately think of like, oh, you're talking about like web components of, you know, 2012. Like, who cares? That in itself is a huge thing to overcome. And even when I talk to people right now and I say, and they're interested in web components, I'm like, if you read an article that is older than 18 months, don't read it. Because it's not what's actually happening today. And the, 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 the speed from which web components have come to be what they are today in an amazingly short period of time, I think has caught a lot of people off guard. I feel that they don't trust it. They think it's weird. I mean, I will definitely say when, when I came to Alaska and I said I was going to build this whole design system using web components four years ago, there was a lot of people who looked at me crooked and like, you, you want to be fired, don't you? Because it was just such a radical idea going in a radically different direction so a lot of people just just don't trust it they don't see it as being viable because it's not supported 
by, a, I mean, maybe that's it too, right? I mean, that's one of the things that I'm looking for when I ask all of you to be on this call is that like, I'm not really seeing a huge invested community around the concept of web components like you see in like React or Vue or even Angular for God's sake. Yeah, so everyone's just voting that they want to do things the hard way. <laughs> oh, let's, we don't have to go there. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll give you a, it's less of a misconception, but the, this is one that I run into more often than not, uh, which might surprise you, which is uh, <clears throat> it doesn't work in IE11 or <laughs> Edge HTML. And and true story, hit this all hit this all the time. Uh, that's that's correct. It doesn't. Um, but at that point, we're not just talking about technology. Um, you're making different design decisions there. Like designing for 2013 and designing for now is is vastly different. Like writing code in 2013 versus writing code now is vastly vastly different. When those conversations have come up, my guidance has typically been: you need to have that conversation very directly about the cascading effect because you're not just picking for technology there. That requirement is going to change how you build. And if you're making it a central requirement that this support those down-level browsers, well, then we're going to have down-level design for all instances. So maybe, just maybe, we should treat that small segment and user base that a very large company is no longer investing in as special and just route them through front door to, to another another route. But that's one where it's like, oh, well, if it's not supported in these really, really old browsers... Uh, the reality is, is you're making different decisions at that point anyway. Well, the browser thing is something you had to double down on. I mean, Corey put out a tweet one day. He's like, I'm writing web components. I'm writing shoelace. It doesn't support IE. If you need to use uh, support IE, then I'm probably not the thing for you to use. And we at Alaska, we had our challenges with, you know, a fair amount of people using Internet Explorer. And the amount of additional coding that I had to put into each web component to get these things to work inside of an IE environment were challenging. It brings everything down, right? Oh God, it, it like does. It it's... brings everything down. Everything goes to the lowest common denominator. And so if the There's lowest so common denominator for you do. is going to be that, like that's the, that's probably been the worst fight. Although it's getting a lot easier because you oh, start yeah, to say, yeah. oh, well you could polyfill it, but you know what? You'll probably have to write the polyfill because it was, it's old and it was written for a specific instance and implementation. And then you have to write the adopted style sheets, polyfill, and you just start going and then their eyes glaze over and they realize that maybe they should just treat it different. So, I mean, for us at least, and, and I think this is happening across the rest of the world, is like IE is dead, right? IE 11 is, is not anybody's focus for a deliverable anymore. We're going we're gonna to be on that train, yes. Yeah. Again, so, I still have I mean, conversations, the... but it's dead. Yeah, it's no longer supported. But the, the more we can go into that environment, then um, I think over, like, I think, you know, this year, 2022 specifically, is going to be huge for web components um, because the, the, the community is growing. The conversation is growing. The, 
the viability of the technology is growing. Uh, Justin at Google is doing an amazing job uh, really showcasing the, the power and the strength of web components. And, and, and yeah, let's not forget the, the team over at Ionic with the work that they're doing with major companies like Microsoft and Apple on uh, delivering applications based on a, a web component architecture. I mean, it's there. And, and, and I even, I didn't even have to say this the other day, but it was somebody else I was in a meeting with where they basically blurted out, they're like, isn't web components and HTML spec? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, well, it's not going anywhere. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> you know, this is a thing. Like in five years, React may be, you know, going downhill, Svelte may be going uphill, you know, like all these different frameworks are going to go in these different directions, but I can damn well guarantee you that there is going to be a constant concept of web components because it is now an html spec and it has now shipped with the browsers given that landscape i mean i see nothing but you know uh, blue skies in front of us have uh, i'm curious on 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 that question in terms of misconceptions because i've heard a few have any of you had feedback regarding the shadow dom and style encapsulation as like a net negative because I've certainly had people discuss that and discuss, you know, adopted style sheets, you know, and whether or not they're performant, they are. The, like, the biggest thing I hear from uh, people not wanting to use CSS and JS, which I see as a low-hanging fruit, and just <laughs> kind of something to, uh, to get over a little bit. Um, the other thing is that a lot of times the, the idea behind Shadow DOM isn't as well known to developers um like having a light dom or a shadow dom it's just exactly what a native input uses or a select they have code underneath that makes it look how it is we can just create components that do the same thing and keep the encapsulated uh, styles so that outside things don't override what we've written what i find interesting about that discussion is you have a lot of people who have for many years have been like, we need encapsulation, right? We need to be able to protect these things so styles don't leak in and out. And then once they're given that, because they're not aware of how to use it, or maybe because the custom element doesn't expose parts by design or just because maybe the developer was lazy, but now that they have this ability, they're like, no, 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 wait, 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 this is a problem. Like, why can't we poke into this? And, and I'm like, you know, that's, the feature that's that's really the holy grail that's what we've been trying to aim for for all these years and here we have it and then people are they're complaining about it and i think it's mostly due to lack of familiarity and once we get over that once people realize yeah these things are customizable but number one as a an author of these components you have to think a little bit more and be much more intentional with the things that you're exposing uh, and number two, you're not doing it the same way that you used to. You know, you have this part attribute thing going on. You have these other things that you can learn. Um, but I think once we get over that, people will be more um, open to adopting them. For sure. There's all, there's definitely also that aspect there. And you mentioned uh, at least what I think you said was re people just tend to reach for what they know. When you don't have that familiarity that Corey's talking about, yeah, like you reach for what you know. Everything is a nail and you've just got a hammer. Right. And so I think there's there's an element of can we can we move away from that and towards a curiosity that helped drive the web towards web components in the first place? Who knows? Who knows what's next after this? 
But if we continue, if we continue to go down this road, where like you know the popular thing is what everybody reaches for, and then you just have, I mean, I'm in the midst of hiring um, someone right now, and I just had the conversation. Listen, I don't care if you know TypeScript, and frankly, like it doesn't make you a better JavaScript developer. Just like knowing React doesn't make you a better React developer. Fan the flames of curiosity, y'all. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, um, this has been a great conversation, and I, I want to get. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I want to get us closer to wrapping up and uh, give some people some ways to contact us. Right now, we we have the developing design systems hashtag that we're monitoring. Uh, people who have questions or have asked questions, we'll take a look through there. And after the fact of our space, try to throw in some thoughts if, if we haven't gotten to them live here. And then uh, yeah, we'd love to keep this an ongoing conversation. So definitely look, uh, look forward for more announcements when we host this space again. And then you can feel free to uh, follow us. Uh, I don't know y'all's uh, positions on DMs, but I I'm fairly open to answering questions either out in the open or um, sometimes in, in DMs if the question is clear. Yeah, this, this has been awesome. This, this this whole thing was way cooler than I ever possibly imagined. And, and, and kudos to everybody that showed up and, and thanks to you guys for, uh, for, for being a part of this, uh, when I asked and, uh, yeah, we definitely got to do this again. This was, this was too much fun. Thanks for, thanks for letting me, uh, come on here and like have a festivist to air my grievances. Yeah, thanks everybody for coming and for having us. And uh, we look forward to, to more of your questions in the future. All righty. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.